we will do the Lord's Supper, the communion, at the end of the message, uh, just to let you know, uh, because I want to base it on what I'm going to say in a message time. And uh, so what's going to happen, we'll do the communion. Ryan will lead us in the doxology, a cappella, which means what? No instruments. Uh, we'll do a brief benediction, and then we'll introduce the Palmers. We'll stop the live stream, and then we'll hear uh, what their plans are. So that's the approach today. And then after that, we're going to let you eat. All right, sound like a plan? Good deal. So today's message is from Acts chapter 15, and it's the phrase there is taken straight from the passage that mankind may seek the Lord. That's what's going on here. Uh, just FYI, next week we'll do Leap of the Faith as we see the second missionary journey, and the gospel will go into Macedonia. Uh, just an awesome passage there. And then uh, Acts 17, this should be really interesting, on October 30th, the marketplace of ideas from Paul's encounter with the philosophers in Athens, Greece, to uh, where we are today in our thinking about things. So that'll be fun. Uh, November, we're working on also Christmas plans, so just uh, hang loose on all of that. But we will have Christmas this year, I promise. And Christmas Day is what day of the week? Yeah, just, just want to let you know that. All right, so... Uh, I wanted to give you a map just to orient you. You know I'm a map guy, I just am. And so this is going to orient you to the world. These are locations today. And then I'm going to get into from the book of Acts what the locations were there. If you look on the far right, that's the east, of course. We have Iran. We have Tehran, Iran. And above that, Baku, we've got Azerbaijan up in that area. Then uh, I know you've been waiting for this map, you know, for weeks. So... Down on the bottom there is uh, Kuwait and the old city of Ur, the ziggurat has been unearthed. And so that's where the city of Ur was that Abraham came from, Abram. Then further up, you've got Baghdad. So we're in Iraq in this part of the map. Uh, some famous cities in Iraq also would be Mosul and Erbil. That's where they're located. Then as you move up, you see Batman. Now that's not a joke, I promise. Uh, that is actually a city there. It's 350,000 people there in a beautiful valley area. And the reason I put that is because a few years ago, I started hearing reports of, with the refugees up in that region, amazing revivals taking place to the point where people were not only coming to Christ, but wanting to go around the world with the gospel. Uh, then a little further up, you have, the, you have Ark. Now, this is serious. That's Mount Ararat, and there's been echolocation and such to indicate that the ark is there, you know, there are people that believe it's there, but that's where it would be. I know you thought it was in Kentucky, but it's not, it's there. <laughs> so I'm going to move further toward the west, Aleppo, Syria, Beirut, Lebanon, Damascus, Syria, Jerusalem, Cairo, of course, uh, Ankara, uh, that would be Turkey, modern Turkey, Asia Minor in that area, and then Istanbul. Then you see Athens down there, and you have some other cities that have notable Greek populations there. So on the, uh, on the west side of the map. So anyway, and then Colorado Springs, in case you don't know where you are, I put that on the map as well. So turn with me to Acts chapter 15. And let's take a look at Paul and his missionary journeys. And, and we'll go from there. Speaking of maps, while you're turning, uh, I don't know if you follow the Babylon Bee. How many of you follow the Bee? And you know it's a satire site. So this week they had this, I thought this was classic. Scholars now believe Paul used handy map in back of Bibles, uh, study Bible, to see where he should go next. And one of the reasons I put that there, because look at that map. What is that map a map of? Please figure this out. The first missionary journey, which we've been talking about. And 
At the end of Acts chapter 14, you see where the dark arrow goes to Antioch. Uh, that's where they ended up, and we're going to pick it up there in Acts chapter 15. So I'm really grateful for the B actually foreshadowing the sermon today. And you'll notice uh, the town Adaliah, the uh, upper left-hand corner, they got on a boat from there, they went to Antioch by sea, and then that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 15. So we're going to read uh, down through there and see what we've got today. But Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what they're saying is without faithfulness to the Old Testament covenant, you cannot be saved. What's the problem with that? A couple of things. Number one, that would mean you would have to go into Judaism to be saved. And it also implies there's works involved in salvation. So this isn't just a challenge. This is huge. The very life of the gospel, I think, is at stake. And so they came down from Judea because Jerusalem's over 2,000 feet in elevation, so literally they were coming down and they were, they were going up there and they were teaching that. And uh, so they were confusing the brothers in Antioch, so we have an issue here. And so verse 2, Paul was not a wallflower at all. He was the opposite. And after, notice after, Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, dissension, pardon me, and debate with them, so they really got after it. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up, again, up in elevation to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders about this question or this issue, because this is huge. Now, in Acts uh, 6, when we had the proto-deacons, the first deacons, uh, you saw the apostles engaged with the debate. Now we see the apostles and the elders because everywhere they go now they're appointing elders to carry on the leadership and we have elders. And this is such a big issue. They are fighting tooth and nail because they want to make sure the gospel is a gospel of grace and not works. That there's nothing you can do. But for the people that are Jewish, they're saying, well, no, we've got to stay in the Old Testament. We've got to stay in the law. That's the way God trained us to be. We must be that way. So that would mean any Gentile coming to Christ would have to be dragged into Judaism first. So verse 3, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So when they went down on this trip where the white arrow goes down to Phoenicia and Samaria, it's about a 250-mile trip, that's the route they took. And everywhere they went, they made sure to give a full report about how the gospel was going to Gentiles as well as Jews. And everybody was excited. But in verse 4, watch what happens. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. So they laid out the full picture of how God had led Gentiles to Christ. But now we're in the mothership of Judaism. We're in Jerusalem. And there are still plenty of believers there who were trained in Judaism and still practice it that way. And many who have come out of the Pharisees, and think about it, Paul himself had been a Pharisee. So they're still doing it the old way. 
I don't know what made me think about this, but in Georgia, in the Appalachians, when you would go to a country church, they would have the red hymnal and the brown hymnal. And the red hymnal was the new hymnal, and the brown hymnal was the old hymnal, a lot of times with shape note. And uh, so, you know, they would have to say, we're going to be in the brown hymnal today, you know, the old one, uh, when life was the way it was supposed to be, you know, that kind of thing. So that's kind of the deal with the Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees. They had a distinct group with distinct beliefs about that. They were strong-minded. Paul had similar roots, but he had a heart for the gospel of grace. And so we see different ways of looking at it in the early church. And notice these people from a Jewish background, they are believers. They're all believers. They just have distinct uh, beliefs. So in verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, Rabbi McElhaney, <laughs> I know you have very strong opinions about that. I thank you for feeling free to share that among our body here. As you know, in this body, we have people from many, many different backgrounds. And we certainly honor what you're saying. We appreciate you sharing that. So thank you, Rabbi. And Rabbi, I must say, you look striking <laughs> in a bathrobe. <laughs> Brother Dan, yes, would you like to speak?
Thank you, Brother Dan. So in Jerusalem, in Acts 15, this was the environment, this was the tone, and they had this dialogue together. So as you can see, it works quite well to have you at tables today. But you notice what they say, what Brother Rabbi Cam McElhaney said. He's one of the few rabbis from Ireland, by the way. <laughs> they say, it is necessary to circumcise and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Not optional, they use the word necessary. There is no option here. It's not a nice thing, it's necessary. And it's not just circumcision they're referring to. It's the whole shooting match. You look at the Old Testament and it's like, that's what the people of God do. And so the rabbis did have a, a point that had to be considered. It's like, well, God told us to do that years ago. Do we still do it? And that's one of the questions before them. So I hope you can kind of see that. I pulled this together. I was really interested in uh, seeing if I could portray this for you. What you have to understand is the kind of uh, yellowish, tannish background there refers to the holiness of God. That's God's holiness. And God transcends time, obviously. So you go way back in eternity past, you notice the arrow there. Before time began, there was God all throughout time, eternity future, with the arrow continuing. There's always God's holiness. God decided to create. He created in the Garden of Eden. He, he put Adam and Eve we have sin in Genesis chapter 3, and the red box then represents sin. Then God saw how messed up the world was, and so with Abraham, God said, I'm going to take you from Ur, which was on the map, and I'm going to take you to a land I will show you, which required faith. And I'm going to create a nation that does not exist. It's going to be my work, and out of that nation eventually will come one who will die for the world. So that was the plan for sinful mankind. After that... God gave Moses the law when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt. And God said, this is how I want you to live for me when you get into the promised land. And so he gave Moses the law. So the blue box refers to the law. But understand, long before Moses was Abraham, who was the father of Israel. Then Christ comes along. When Christ died on the cross, he officially did away with the law. He fulfilled the law, Matthew 5, 17. He kept the law. The law was over in its requirement, and now, with the green box, we come into the new age, the church age, the new covenant, and that yellow star is where they are in Acts chapter 15. But a lot of them have not caught up to it because they're fixated on that blue box, like we have to keep the law like that. So this is a huge issue, and Paul and the other guys are going to have to drive them back to what the gospel is all about, to the grace of the gospel. Uh, NH is not New Hampshire, that's not New England, that's what? New heavens and new earth and eternity future. And we're not going to go into more detail than that, but I just wanted to say that now. When God did away with the Mosaic law through the death of Christ, it was totally done. In my opinion, it was totally done as a requirement. But God is always holy, so just because the law is done doesn't mean that you can murder, because what does the Ten, the Ten Commandments say? Thou shalt not murder. Well, that wasn't just with the time of Moses. That's the very holiness of God at work there saying, do not murder. So uh, that's what I wanted to portray by having that background. It's like holiness is always holiness, but we're dealing with the requirements of the law here. And so this is a huge issue. And so look down at verse 6. 
what should they do to remain faithful to God? That's the question. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is huge. And after there had been much debate like this, Peter, who was kind of the leading apostle there, stood up and said to them, here are the details. Peter and James are going to give the theological foundation for the change. Brothers, you know that in the early days of the church, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter is saying, from the very first of the church, we saw God reaching out to the Gentiles. That was his heart. Uh, and through the grace, and by the way, in the Greek here, it's in the first position in this expression. In other words, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we will be saved, and they will as well. So it's all by the grace of God. And uh, I want to go back in verse 10 at the end there. Neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Raise your hand if you have been able to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Hmm. Well, outside of one, I don't see any hands raised. And that's the problem. Nobody could bear the law. And Jesus said, ah, you think you've fulfilled the Ten Commandments? All right. You say you've never murdered? I mean, I, I don't think many people in this room have murdered. And he said, if you are angry at your brother and sister, you have murdered in your mind. Oh. So there you go. If you've lusted, you've committed adultery. If you've coveted, you've committed theft, etc. All of us are guilty with that. And so for them to come along and say, no, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep all of this, is to put a burden on them. First of all, they can't even keep. And secondly, it's one that Jesus died for. By the way, this is the last we will see of Peter in the book of Acts. Right here. So after hearing it, I'm sorry, Brother uh, Rabbi Cam, our Irish rabbi, in verse 12, all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Why is this mentioned? Well, first of all, Barnabas is mentioned first. He probably has more credibility with the Jerusalem church. But... Uh, what they're saying is that when we went to the Gentiles, we saw God's signs and wonders amongst the Gentiles, just like he did with the Jews. And so, therefore, this is God's affirmation of the Gentiles. So, man, the stories are amazing, and it's so intense. And now James is going to give additional theology, and then he's going to give them the solution. So, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take a people for his name. That, by the way, the, the expression first visited, that's the idea of a messianic visitation. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Amos 9. I will rebuild its ruins 
and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James is saying it has always been God's design to reach the nations. And the heart of God is not just in the Mosaic law. The heart of God goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and the calling of Abraham to say, I want to reach all the nations of the earth. It's not about one. And you will be the father of many peoples. And my desire is to reach them all. And that's the heart of God. So James is taking them back to where God was all along from of old. And that the rebuilt Davidic house is the son of David, the Messiah, who will come to establish his kingdom. His kingdom work, I think, started with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. It includes equally Jews and Gentiles. And he is not asking them to become Jewish first, but to go straight to Christ. And God is rebuilding. Now, there's a debate among scholars about when the kingdom begins. I believe it has begun. I think it expresses itself in different ways. I think the service we do is for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I think there will come a time, whenever God wills, where it's all going to be consummated and we'll have the kingdom all together. But for now, we are serving the king and we are serving the kingdom. And God is calling Gentiles. It's a good thing. How many Jewish people do we have in here? How many people of Jewish background? Okay, we have some. But the vast majority of you would have been left out if God had not reached the Gentiles. And if God did not have a heart for the Gentiles. I think the very gospel is at stake, the very work of the kingdom, the work of Christ, the very church itself is at stake in this passage. So in verse 19, James continued, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's not put any obstacles in front of them. We're not asking them to become Jews. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, I know when I was a kid and I heard stuff like this, abstain from what's been strangled, I would have laughed at that and I'm like, that's weird. You don't have to worry about that. I'm not seeking stuff that's been strangled. What in the world does that mean? Well, he's going to give them four things to not cause offense. And the idea here is that because the life is in the blood, God said in the Old Testament, when you eat meat, make sure you drain the blood out of it so you don't eat blood directly. Well, in the pagan world, pagan priests, when they did a sacrifice, would taste the blood. I know that's gross, but that's what they would do. So basically what they're saying here so beautiful is, we are not going to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the grace of Christ given and received by faith. We will not compromise that. Just like we as a church will not compromise that, right? We will not. But at the same time, we're culturally sensitive, and we realize that a lot of our believers have come from Judaism, such as Rabbi McElhaney. And we realize that they continue to... What did Siri say? <laughs> Siri is fighting back. I never thought she was Jewish. 
So we will not compromise the gospel, but we realize there are amongst us people that still follow the law and we're not going to cause undue offense to them. And so we want you to be careful about what has been sacrificed to idols. Don't drink the blood. Hey, no worries here. What has been strangled? What does that mean? Well, when you strangle the animal, you leave the blood in the body. So it's saying make sure the animal is bled before you eat it. Does that make sense? Sexual immorality, this one has been the one that's kind of confused people. Probably it's referring to the temple prostitution that was so common in the ancient world. And, and he's saying all of this is related to the pagan temples. Stay away from this stuff. Uh, be careful. So don't cause offense. Don't offend them culturally, but stick to the pure gospel. And then he goes on in verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So back then, basically this is before Jerusalem was destroyed, AD 70, wherever you go, you're going to run into a Jewish synagogue. And so respect them, show sensitivity to their culture. Just don't compromise the gospel. Be loving, be flexible. Very similar to Romans 14 and 15. You know the whole thing about meat sacrificed to idols and Paul dealing with the gray area things, basically the principle there is these may not be directly related to the gospel, but they're a matter of cultural offense. So respect somebody's culture and be careful. And this is one of the things, uh, Susie and I, when we were in Atlanta, got very involved in ministry to Muslims. And we realized that a lot of the issues related to that ministry related to being sensitive to not unnecessarily offend. And we grew to really love them but also it was like, what is important for the gospel and what is secondary that would cause offense and it just really doesn't matter? And so that's what he's saying here is keep to a pure gospel, be careful on the secondary issues. And frankly, a lot of the things we, we talk about, you know, in our churches just kind of are more secondary than we want to admit, but stick with a pure gospel. So the whole assembly is there and all of this seemed good to them. So as look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas. This is not Judas Iscariot. They sent Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And here it goes. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Even though they're going north, they're going downhill. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many many words. Verse 33, after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them back in Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God with many others, word of the Lord and many others also. And by the way, the word for preaching is euangelizo, and it means uh, to preach the gospel. They're giving the gospel as well as teaching the church. So they're back in Antioch now, as you see on the map. And to finish out the chapter, verse 36, after some days, some period of time passes by, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now tell me what happened to those cities. Paul was stoned. They were attacked. They were run out of the cities. And Paul's saying, let's go back. Back into Turkey, back into Asia Minor, and let's check on the churches we planted. In verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. This is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, who was on the first missionary journey and then chickened out for whatever reason and left the journey. Verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul was like, Barnabas, Mark left us before. I don't want to take him again. And the word withdrawn is in the first position here. It's emphasized he withdrew, he left us, he abandoned us. And there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But God, pardon me, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commissioned by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So this is what you have. Sorry. From Antioch, Paul went back into Asia Minor, back into Turkey, not by boat, but overland. He got up to the city of Troy, or Troas, and got the Macedonian vision, so he goes over into Greece. This is the second missionary journey, and the gospel goes to Greece. He ends up in Athens before he comes back. Barnabas goes down to the island of Cyprus. Now the split causes trouble for people. They're like, they're concerned, why did they split? And, you know, how does God view it? Um, all we can say is that God keeps score, but their split caused the gospel to spread out. Paul continued to respect Barnabas, 1 Corinthians 9, 6. And Paul never held a grudge against Mark, Philemon 24. Paul loved them, he respected them, but he's like, we're not taking Mark. But it was strong enough that they split. So I want you to think this morning, in closing, as we're gathered together as a body, I think the tables give it an interesting feel. It makes you feel a little more like a fellowship together, kind of a group that interacts with one another. And you see the interaction in the early church. You see a lot of respect, but you see different opinions. And that's kind of the way things are today. But you see the love they have for one another. It is possible to have your own opinions, to still love the brother who disagrees. It's possible to have your own opinion and not cause offense. 
And all of us need to seriously consider the fact that what really matters is the purity of the gospel of grace. And I have a lot of opinions, and I know you do too, but the thing we stand on together is that we would not be saved apart from Jesus Christ and his work. And the only message we can give to sinful people is a message of grace and redemption and not of works. And so would you bow your head and close your eyes right now? If for any reason in your life you've been thinking, well, I'm just going to make God happy by what I do, and that's it. I'm basically a good person. I do good things. The problem is you're falling short of the holiness of God, which transcends everything. The only way you can really truly know God is by the grace that God gives through Jesus Christ. It is a gospel of grace, not of works, so that you can't brag about how good you are None of our goodness will get us to heaven. If you've never thought of this before, you're here, you're online, and you're pondering this for the first time, God reaches out to you with a message of grace and says, my son died for you. Receive his work for you by faith, and I will come into you, and I will give you life. It is the gospel of grace, not of works, so that we don't get credit. So right now, this morning, you have a chance to do that in your heart. Now, if you're a believer this morning, praise God. We're so glad you're here. But we're about to have a time, what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, where together as a group, we're going to fellowship around the communion process. And I want you to take a moment. We'll have a moment of silent prayer. And in your heart, thank the Lord for the salvation he's given to you. Take a moment to pray if there's anything you need to ask forgiveness for, to pray that and confess. And take a moment to get your heart right before the Lord. So that when we take communion, we are doing it with a joyful, pure heart and giving him the glory. So let's have a moment of silent prayer. Jesus, it's so hard to fathom the depth of your grace, even to fathom the depth of your death for us. It's so hard to, to even speak of it because I realize I fall so short of the incredible glory of the grace of Christ. But your word has told us what you did and why. And your word has told us to glorify you, and we seek to do that today. May you have your glory among us because we yield to you and we praise you and we lift you up. And as we take the elements of communion, give us the heart to appreciate what it is we're doing and why. And may, as always, you be glorified. Amen. At your table, you have the cups, as Alicia had said, and you have the bread. So if you would now, one of you or two of you or whatever at the table, serve each other. Hold the elements and then I will lead us in taking them.
when you've been served, just hold the elements. You know, one thing about this today that I really like is that there's something to serve. Did you feel that? Back in Georgia, I'm not saying this is one of the ordinances God has commanded, but often we practice foot washing, and the first time I had that happen, I thought, yeah, whatever. Foot washing was the most humbling thing I had ever been through. There's something about serving and being served. So this morning, we're going to take the bread, and we're going to, I'm going to read to you from the scriptures, and then you'll know when to partake. The Apostle Paul was in an environment with the believers in the early church where it was probably a lot like this, that, that when they partook of the Lord's Supper, they were doing it with a meal. And so today we're giving you that feel. And he says, in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So it just shows that there's been factions for thousands of years. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Some people are just going ahead and jumping into the Lord's Supper. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And that's the context for the Lord's Supper, because now what he says is, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, I reflect upon your body, a body born by the Mother Mary, nurtured and coddled by Mary and Joseph, a body that was raised, that grew strong, that became extremely strong as a carpenter, a body that was anointed by Mary years later, and not long after, a body that was grabbed and dragged to the jail, a body that was whipped and scourged, that bled all over the place because of the intensity of the scourging, a body that was forced to carry the cross to Golgotha, a body that was slammed on the wood with nails penetrating the hands and the feet. When that cross was raised up and dropped into the hole, that body slammed down. And for several hours on that Friday afternoon, that body and soul bore the sins of the entire human race. Every nation, Jew and Gentile, every people around the earth, the billions of people who would live in history, every one of them, thought of that body was broken for us we praise you
Paul continues, in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper. So if you'll take the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, Jesus, we think of every animal sacrificed in the history of Israel hundreds, thousands of years before you came. Every pint, every gallon of blood that was spilled, none of it truly could take away sins. And then you came along. And in your blood, in your death, you gave the final atonement. You did away with the law. You destroyed evil. You destroyed Satan. His time will come. As we take the cup today, we think of you, and we are so grateful for the salvation we have. And I realize there's nothing I can do that will come a fraction close to your holiness and to the magnitude of you dying for my sins. So I thank you and I praise you to your glory. Amen.